Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6. John 6 will be in the first 21 verses today. You know, exile is something we've become pretty familiar with this year. Um, It used to just be something we saw on television. You know, a princess locked away in a tower, guarded by a dragon. You know, Tom Hanks stranded on an island with nothing but a volleyball. We we used to just see this on television. But we've, many of us have lived it at some point this year, exile. Um, We've felt that. We've been stuck in exile. Um, I had to go back and listen to the sermon I preached March 22nd to get a detail out of something that I said recently. And um, that was the first sermon I preached when we got back from Arizona after all the lockdowns began. I preached it on Facebook Live alone. Um, Adrian was the only person in the room while I was preaching. And I was listening to the beginning of it, and, um, and, and I was saying, you know, they're talking about how we're going to have to just close church for a couple weeks just to get this thing under control, and then we'll be back to normal. And I thought, what a little naive boy you are. Um, because quarantine, as you know, drug on into weeks and then months. And it's still technically going on, but at this point, most people are just over it. Like, we're just done with it. At least in Georgia, there's some states that still have people locked in their house who can't leave. Um, but we've had senior adults in our church who have barely left their house since February. We've been experiencing exile. We've felt that. And I want you to think about that exile this morning and, and, and what you've experienced in that and know that the exile that we've been in this year is but a picture of a greater exile that Jesus came to do away with. And so John 6, we're going to look at the deliverance from that exile, a picture of it. Um, John 6, I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing what a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy food? Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw this, this sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I don't know what miracle you find to be most fascinating that Jesus performed. I don't know if that's healing the blind or raising the dead or walking on water or turning water into wine or casting out demons, but um, the early Christians seemed to have the feeding of the 5,000 at the top of that list because it's the only miracle Jesus performed that appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A lot of times, people who doubt the, the, the credibility of the Bible will say that the book of John is not a very good book because it's, it's obviously from a different source than what Matthew, Mark, and Luke came from because it's so different. But if the credibility then is that all four Gospels tell the story, we can be sure the feeding of the 5,000 happened. There's four witnesses. So they come to this area. Jesus and his disciples come to the other side of the sea, it says, and a large crowd follows them there, a big group of people. Thousands and thousands of people are there. And it says they came, verse 2, because they saw the signs that he was doing. We've seen that phrase pop up several times in John. Specifically, if you remember back in chapter 2, it said the crowds came because they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus didn't trust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. He knew they didn't really believe in him. They just believed in his signs. When we, um, when, when we get to this, um, that this crowd isn't being spoken very well of in that, especially when we're going to see the rest of John 6 in two weeks, November 8th. Um, this, this is Passover. It's taking place at Passover. It's the most important Jewish holiday. They celebrated it more extravagantly than we celebrate Christmas in the United States. It was a big holiday. It remembered what happened in the Exodus. It, you remember the story. You, you've, you've seen the movie of Charlton Heston. Like they, they, they do the, the Passover happens. It's promised you're going to, um, God is going to bring this 10th plague and um, I want you to take the blood off, off the lamb and put it over your doorpost, and that will protect your family as the plague comes. And so the plague comes, and all the, all the firstborns of the land die, except for those who are under the blood post. And Pharaoh, so frustrated by this, says, all right, get out of here. Get, get out of here. So they leave. They leave Egypt out of very terrible slavery, probably as bad, if not worse, than the slavery in the 1800s in the U.S. Pharaoh changes his mind after they've left, and he comes after them. God parts the waters of the Red Sea. They go through. Pharaoh's army is destroyed. Then they are in the wilderness, and God provides them manna. All of that is coming to mind as they're thinking of the Passover. All of it. So keep that story in mind because it's going to play a huge part in what happens here in this story. So this huge crowd is here, and they need food. They're hungry. They've been listening to Jesus teach all day. They have no food. When Mark tells the story in the gospel, um, in his book, he says that Jesus had compassion on this crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are in trouble. 
They're stupid animals. They don't know what to do. They will get lost and they will get mauled by a wolf. They're like sheep without a shepherd and Jesus has compassion on them. Remember, Jesus is a shepherd. He's the shepherd. We'll we'll see that even more when we get to John 10 in a few weeks. He's the shepherd. He cares for you. He cares for sheep. Are you fearful this morning? You hopeful? I'm sorry, you hopeless? You downcast? You hurting? You mourning? You hungry? Trust and depend on the good shepherd. He cares for you. So they're together, and, and Jesus looks at Philip, and he says, where are we going to buy all the bread for these people? Philip, where's the closest Piggly Wiggly? Go, go get the bread. And he asked this of Philip. It says to test him, verse 6, to test Philip. See what he says. He wants to know what Philip's going to say if he's truly his follower. What, what's he going to say to answer that question? He asked Philip, and so the question we might ask then, does God test us? Because Jesus tests Philip here. Um, sure, he does test us. He doesn't tempt anybody, but he might take us through a test. You remember Abraham, he tested Abraham, seeing if Abraham would offer up his son to him. Um, but I would say to you, don't assume every time something bad happens in your life that God is testing you. Because it may just be that we live in a terrible world and bad things happen. This isn't a personal tragedy for Philip. This is just a question that he gets asked. Where are we going to find all the food for these people? It calls back, actually, if you know, for a person reading this, they would have had the Old Testament memorized. They would have known Numbers 11, 13, where Moses literally asked God, where am I going to buy food for all these people in the wilderness? It's the same thought echoing through what Jesus is asking. And Philip says, well, I mean, I've sat down and I've ran the numbers and, I mean, we'd have, to, we'd have to have 200 denarii. And that still wouldn't be enough to feed all these people. A denarii, denarii represented the, um, a, a day's wage. So, Jesus, we've got to work 200 days of work to have enough money to buy food for these people. And that probably wouldn't even be enough. So, Philip is thinking like most of us do. We think money's the answer. We think if we just had enough money, that would fix the problem. We, we would have all that we need. You know, churches do this a lot. Um, for years in churches, success has been measured based on the three Bs. Buildings, budgets, and butts. How big is your building? The bigger your building, the more successful of a church you are. How much money do you have in your budget? The bigger your budget, the more successful of a church you are. And how many butts are in the seats in your building? How many people is there represents how successful you are. And I just want to say, if that's what success says in church, Jesus was the most unsuccessful pastor in history. He had no building. You know, what little budget he had, Judas would, you know, pick money out of. They'd go on a road trip, he'd stop at a 7-Eleven and get, you know, all kinds of different snacks for the road that he wasn't supposed to get. And he had 12 followers. 12. And one of them sold him out to the Roman government. He had 11. But he took those 11 disciples, very little money and no building, and he sent them out and they changed the world. That's what success is. It's being faithful with, with what you have, not, not with what you could have. So Jesus isn't thinking about money here. Another disciple, Philip, is thinking about money. Andrew brings this boy. Remember, Andrew always brings people to Jesus in John. He did it with 
Peter in chapter 1. He'll do it in chapter 12 as well. Um, He's always bringing people to Jesus. He brings this boy to Jesus. He says, well, I mean, it's not much, but this boy, he's got... He's got five barley loaves and two fish. Um, You know, he brought the barley loaves for lunch, and then he caught these two fish while he was over there fishing in the pond. Um, That's all he's got. Not going to do much, but, I mean, we've got something to work with. And you can almost hear the disciples, Really? Why, Why are you even bothering, Andrew? What's the point of even making that suggestion? And on top of that, he's got five barley loaves. Um, you see, this, th- these are the grain of the poor. Barley loaves are what the poor people ate. This is not Asiago cheese bagels from Panera Bread. This is the kind of bread they gave out in the Great Depression. Like, it's just not very good quality bread. It's essentially a sack lunch for one or two people. When I was in seminary, um, I was working 40 hours a week. I was doing my full-time seminary degree on, uh, at school. I was teaching a Sunday school class every week, and I prepared for my Sunday school class the same way I prepare for a sermon, um, several hours in preparation. And it was Adrian and I's first year of marriage. And so pretty much four areas of my life tied up pretty well. And I sat down with my pastor one Wednesday night, and I said, you know, I feel like I'm not doing enough. I... I I want to serve the Lord. I want to try to witness to some of my neighbors. I want to serve in different ways in this church. Uh, I I want to, um, you know, lead some youth in a discipleship group. But I'm stretched so thin. What should I do? And my pastor looked at me and he said, I think you take the five loaves and the two fish that you got and you serve him knowing you can't do everything. You, You can't do everything, but you can do something. So do something. It's about 10 years ago, a movement began among Christian young people. Um, inspired by some books that came out, Radical by David Platt, Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. Very good mindset. Live radical lives for Christ. Don't make your life about yourself. But I think a negative aspect of that, which I've seen in my own life, is, is to have too high of an expectation of what I can do for the Lord. When I was in college, I led three Bible studies a week. I preached every chance I got. I was on the leadership team at, at our BCM and so many other things in addition to being a full-time college student. And I remember always feeling so stressed out, so stretched thin, I couldn't do anything well. But if I wasn't doing this, I wasn't being radical and sold out to Jesus. It, It leads to this mindset. That if I'm not always doing something Christian, if I'm not, um, you know, doing something serving Christ in every single moment of my day, I'm sinning, which just isn't true. It's just not true. It leads people, or at least led me, to try to use more than I have and feel bad when I'm not able to get all that done. So I would just say to you, serve the Lord radically, but recognize there's limits to what you can do. You've got five loaves and two fish, use them. Use them to do something, but don't try to use more than you have. And recognize the freedom in that. You've you got to learn how to say no. You don't have to be involved in everything. So they take this five loaves and two fishes. Jesus sets down with it. He says, hey, have the people set down. Have all of them sit down. And it says there, notice, verse 10, the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. So just the men right there. Um, It's 5,000 men that are there. 
It, it doesn't count the women and children in that number. Probably more like 15,000 15, to 20,000 people are here. You think these men each had a wife. They probably had at least two kids. People had a lot of kids in those days. So probably many more than 5,000. Um, the book of John isn't showing every miracle Jesus performed, but thus far it's shown big miracles. It's shown astronomically big things that Jesus has done. He's turned 175 gallons of water into wine. He's healed a child from 16 miles away. He's healed a man who hasn't walked for nearly four decades. And now he'll provide food for tens of thousands of people off of a sack lunch. Jesus takes the food, says he gives thanks for it, and he distributes it. That's it. Doesn't say how he did it. We don't know if he like, you know, takes the loaf and breaks it and it materializes into two full loaves. You know, we don't know. You remember those little things that you used to buy kids? They were like little pills, and you put them into a bucket, a bottle of water, and it, and it stretched out into a dinosaur? Maybe he does that. Maybe he picks a piece off and poof! I don't know what he does, but, but he gives thanks. He takes these five barley loaves, and he distributes. That's it. Jesus provides the bread needed for all these people. Do you hear the echoes of the Exodus story? Do you hear the echoes of what happened with Moses? God provided manna in the wilderness from heaven every single day. And some leftovers on Friday for the following day, the Sabbath, so you didn't have to go out and get the bread on the Sabbath. Re remember that. Keep it in mind. These people ate their fill. It says they ate their fill on this. Verse 12. They didn't just get a slice of bread. They, they filled up on it. They gorged themselves on this food. They took some home, maybe. But there's leftovers. Twelve baskets worth. That is, each disciple had a snack for the next road trip out of this meal. And so they come to him, verse 14 and 15, they say, this is the prophet, this is the guy, let's make him our king. Let's do it. This is the fourth sign that Jesus performs, that's what it calls it, verse 14 there. The fourth sign in the book of John, remember signs always point to something, stop signs tell you to stop. Um, remember that? The people see this and they know what it reminds them of. The wilderness, the manna, all that stuff. They remember their Old Testament. They remember Deuteronomy 18 that says God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses. They just don't understand that he had a little more in mind than just a prophet like Isaiah. Like, and that's what's going, that, that in Deuteronomy, God had something way bigger than that in mind. And they think he's here. They think, right now, what has just happened, let's get this thing going. Let's start the, the next Moses doing his thing. So they try to make him king by force. This is kind of the same thing that happened in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Jesus in the wilderness getting tempted by Satan. Um, Satan takes him up on a high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, hey, just bow down and worship me. I'll give you every single one of them. It's this idea, hey, if you just go ahead and do this now, we can just give you the kingdoms of the world now, even though Jesus knows I'm going to have to suffer to get these kingdoms. I'm going to have to die to get all authority in heaven and on earth. They're trying, here, and Satan was as well, trying to get him to abandon his suffering, abandon the reason that he came, and get the nations now. Take the easy path. 
So knowing that they're doing this, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And then we get to the next five verses. 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land which they were going. So the disciples, after all this happened, Jesus slips away. We know from the other books that he tells them to get in a boat. He'll meet them on the other side, so just go on. So they get in a boat, they go, and a like crazy storm happens. They're out in the middle of the sea. You know, it's not like today where they can kind of manage that. They're, they're just in a boat, that's it. And, and they're trying to figure out what to do. They're certain they're going to die. And then Jesus comes walking on the water, not too far from them. Just, just walking across the water. That, that he's, he's walking. Liberal scholars can't believe in the miraculous because you can't explain it scientifically. So often they'll say Jesus wasn't walking on the water. He's walking on a sandbar. That's just silly. Because, I mean, if you can't believe in the miraculous, that means Jesus is just a mere man right here. So if, let's just picture this. He's walking on a sandbar. There's no street lights or anything for him to see what's going on. He doesn't have his iPhone to pull out and hold the light. Oh, there's the sandbar. No, like, it, it's, it's a pretty big miracle if he can walk on a sandbar in the pitch dark and know where he's going, but he's walking on the water. He looks at them, they're scared to death, and he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. The English translations phrase this just as I just read it to you. It is I. Do not be afraid. The Greek of this actually reads, don't be afraid. I am. Don't be afraid. I am. I don't know why English translations don't translate it like that, but you're going to see over the book of John, Jesus uses the phrase, I am, so often. He's going to do it in 635 when we look at it next time. It's, it's God's name. I am, do not be afraid. He's, he's, he, he gave that to Moses at the burning bush, and he's giving it to the disciples here. Do not be afraid. I am. So what's going on here? You, you see so many echoes of the story of Moses in this. You see, you know, the, the Exodus had a water incident. The, disciple, the, the Jews walked through the water as it parted. Jesus doesn't have to walk through the water. He just walks on the water. You, you have the bread coming down from heaven, Jesus providing the manna. And then you have, I am. It's, it's meant to make us think of the Exodus story. That's what's going on. Signs 4 and 5, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, they're, they're meant to scream to us, Jesus is beginning a new exodus. What happened with Moses is happening again. What had been promised to happen with a new Moses is happening again. It's here. So why is that significant? What does that matter to us 2,000 years later? Well, just understand how the Jews would have thought, what they would have understood, that you men might not get... Um, understand the Old Testament. 
Uh, the way our Old Testament is arranged is not actually the way it was originally arranged for the Jewish people. That is Genesis to Malachi. It would have been in a different order. They had the law, the prophets, and the writings. It was arranged differently. The final book of the Old Testament for these people would not have been Malachi. It would have been Second Chronicles. First and Second Chronicles tell the entire story of the Old Testament. It's at the end of the Old Testament for them to say, hey, this is what's happened to us so far. So just turn to the final chapter of Second Chronicles real quick. Second Chronicles 36. Second Chronicles 36. Go on to the end of the chapter, like final couple verses. So understand the people of Israel, you know, um, had their kingdom. They got taken into exile in Babylon. They were eventually released at the proclamation of a guy named Cyrus. And that's what we get here in the final verses of the original Old Testament. Uh, we'll start in verse 23 of chapter 36. I think that's the final verse. Yeah, we'll just read that one. Actually, no, we got to start in 22. I'll tell you why. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now it was in the first year of the Cyrus king of Persia that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. That's how it ends. The reason that's weird, flip one page over to Ezra 1. Ezra chapter 1. It's the same words that we just read. Jump down to verse 3. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And then it goes on and on and on. Why does Second Chronicles all of a sudden end on a cliffhanger? It ends dot, dot, dot. It ends with an incomplete sentence. Your Bible probably has a period there because they don't know what to make of this, but it just ends dot, dot, dot. So it's like one of those TV shows you're watching and it's like the final episode of the season and the building blows up and the main character's inside of it and he starts falling thousands of feet and all of a sudden to be continued pops up and you got to wait like five months to figure out what happened that's what happens at the end of the old testament originally why because the exile isn't over they're still in it they're still in it in john chapter 6 when jesus comes on the scene and does this they're still in the exile they're, they're still in where they were and the only way to get out of exile is through an exodus it's the only way yeah they're not in babylon anymore but they're still very much trapped they don't have governance of their land and we know that they're still trapped in their sins as we all are jesus comes on the scene and begins a new exodus he's come to lead people out of exile in sin, to lead them to righteousness. He's leading us as a new Moses to the promised land, the new creation that we're promised. Do you understand this? The great I am is providing daily bread for us and taking us through the stormy waters all the way to the promised land promised to us. It's the Exodus story all over again. We've been in exile this year. And Jesus hasn't yet delivered us from that exile completely. He's doing things in it. 
But he has begun the ultimate exodus from sin. He has led us out of that. He's leading you out of your sin and all the things that result from your sin. He's leading you out of the exile of your depression, of your loneliness, of your anxiety, of whatever addiction you wrestle with. He's provided the killing blow to all of that stuff. And now we're on the way out of it. What a joy. What wonderful hope we have in that. Follow him and do not look back. Do not look back. Do you know how much, how much you long for all this stuff we're in the world right now to be over? You know how much, you're, you, know how much you long for, you know, to stop hearing the phrase new normal and to stop seeing masks and to stop having to, you know, stay away from people? You know how much you're wanting all that to be over? Understand, you were in an even greater exile than that and Jesus delivered you from it. He led you out of that. How marvelous. Will you follow him out of it? Will you keep following him out of it? Don't be like the Israelites were and desire to go back to Egypt. It's not better for you there. Your sin is not better for you than the righteousness Christ has for you. Jesus is your shepherd. He wants what is good for his sheep, so follow him out of exile. Friend, perhaps you don't know Jesus. You're still trapped in that exile. You feel like it's a prison. And I just want you to know Jesus is at the gates of that prison door saying, come out, you're free. Come out. You must repent of your sins and believe in the good news of what he did for you in his death and resurrection. I'd love to talk with you about that. Talk to me after church today because we're going to take the Lord's Supper um, during our normal response time. Um, So let me pray for us and then we're going to do that. Father, I come to you and I praise you that we are out of exile if we know you. You have broken our chains. You've shown us your wonderful grace. You did all this at Calvary. We praise you, O Christ. Father, help us to live in the joy of that. Do not go back to the sorrow of our sin, of the, of, the, uh, of the facade of our sin that we think is going to satisfy us when it is not. We're, we're always going to need one more hit of whatever sin we had, and it's never going to be enough. Father, may we see that Jesus is enough, and may we chase after him. Lord, thank you that you delivered us from exile when we did not deserve it. Now help us to live in that freedom for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name. Amen.